0: Actually, a lot. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com. That's chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.
1: Hi, everyone, and thank you for tuning in to the 261st episode of Awards Chatter, the Hollywood Reporters Awards podcast, which is now but one of four podcasts that comprise the Hollywood Reporters Podcast Network, the others being It Happened in Hollywood, Behind the Screen, and TV's Top 5. I'm the host, Scott Feinberg, and my guest today has had a professional journey unlike any other, morphing from one of the first YouTube stars to an internationally popular stand-up comedian to a filmmaker. He is currently the toast of Hollywood for his feature writing and directing debut, 8th Grade, a dramedy about an anxiety-riddled 13-year-old girl during her last week of 8th grade which proved one of the most critically acclaimed films of 2018, clocking in at 99% on RottenTomatoes.com, and a breakout arthouse hit, costing $2 million but grossing close to $14 million. He has been awarded the Bingham Ray Breakthrough Director Gotham Award, Best Directorial Debut National Board of Review Award and Best First Film New York Film Critics Circle Award. He was nominated for the Best Original Screenplay Critics' Choice Award, and he is nominated for the Best Original Screenplay Writers Guild of America Award and Best Screenplay Spirit Award, all for a film that cracked Best of 2018 lists from sources ranging from the National Board of Review to the American Film Institute to former President Barack Obama, and that may have more accolades still to come. Bo Burnham. Over the course of our conversation at the offices of The Hollywood Reporter, the 28-year-old and I discussed the origins and implications of his accidental YouTube stardom, how performing comedy alone in his bedroom compared and contrasted to doing so in front of live audiences, how his own intense battles with anxiety motivated him to look for a way out of stand-up and ultimately to write eighth grade, plus much more. So without further ado, let's go to that conversation. All right, Bo, thank you so much for joining us. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me, Scott. Absolutely. We always begin with just a few basics. Where were you born and raised, and what did your folks do for a living? Born in Beverly Hospital,
2: Massachusetts. Raised very near there in Hamilton, Massachusetts, 30 minutes north of Boston.
1: My father works construction, and my mother is a hospice nurse. Mm -hmm. And can you sort of paint a picture of your childhood generally, but also specifically where you might have been what you might have been like in eighth grade yourself oh interior broom closet <laughs> um no yeah i
2: mean i had a pretty basic sort of childhood i don't know i think it was pretty nothing too particular sports i played sports a lot as a kid did a little bit of theater were you very tall even then no i was much shorter i started small yeah and then i got gradually taller but i actually wasn't like in eighth grade i wasn't actually even particularly tall okay I'm six, 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 seven, right? And this is actually me with stunted growth because I didn't hit puberty for a while. I was supposed to be like six ten or six eleven. Oh yeah, so like thank God. But <laughs> eighth grade, I was sort of average, and then like sophomore in high school, I grew seven inches. I had stretch marks on my spine from growing so quickly. Yeah, but it was like it's pretty basic. And even eighth grade wasn't even like a seminal time for me. It wasn't right. like stressful. It was, uh, sophomore year in high school is more what I started stressing out. But right. eighth grade was kind of sick.
1: Yeah, it's a good but
2: I, we didn't get to go to D.C. Like all the other kids, all the other grades before me, we were the first year that didn't do the t- class trip to D.C.
1: Why did you not get to go?
2: I don't know. Because, like, why were you sending eighth graders to Washington, <laughs> D.C.? And actually, Like eighth grade trips, that feels extreme. That yeah. feels like way too young for an entire class of people to go to somewhere else. Not even people, but children. That's <laughs> the thing, like, when I was in schools, going back to these schools to shoot the movie, the thing that, like, struck me the most was, like, Oh my God, you do the kids realize how much they outnumber the adults? Like you can't believe that order is maintained. And when you go back as an adult, I guess when you're a kid, you just like believe in the system enough for it to work. But going back as an adult, I'm like, there are like twelve adults and a thousand kids in here. (laughs) Or there are like three adults in this room and there are eight hundred kids in an auditorium. Like, let alone like you you're gonna bring a class of whatever, three, four hundred (laughs) kids to to DC. DC. and they're going to come back alive. Right. That seems
1: impossible. Well, you mentioned that it wasn't until sort of junior year, high school, that you started to feel stress. Let's talk about that because you've been very open about the fact that you battle with anxiety. That was a part of the motivation for doing eighth grade, the movie. But yet what I what I don't understand is how a person who feels that way would still gravitate towards performing, which I understand you did at home, you did at school, even in something which I'll leave it to you to define called competitive theater. Why would somebody who gets stressed out in the world choose to put themselves out in front of the world?
2: Yeah, competitive theater is basically a system in which young people compare the quality of capes. (laughs) It just sort of cape thread count is sort of the competitive (laughs) nature of theater. No, but yeah, no, I mean, I think a lot of anxious people are attracted to the arts. And I think a lot of people are anxious, period, too. I think anxiety is a pretty universal experience. I mean... Not anxiety disorders, mm-hmm. which I do feel like I in part have. I don't have a severe anxiety disorder, but I have had panic attacks, and that's something that not everyone in their life has had.
1: Well, and you were hospitalized, not
2: irregularly in high school, right? Yeah, not hospital. I mean, hospitalized is probably a- an intense verb. We just thought I had stomach problems because every day of sophomore year, I just like be on the toilet. It was just because I was stressed because yeah. I was worried I was going to get like a B plus. I was a very <laughs> sort of a problem school kid. Like right. I was very, very stressed about grades, very stressed about my schoolwork.
1: This is at like an all boys, boys Catholic, Catholic school. that
2: school. was very academically competitive right. and, and it was sort of like in, in this sort of awful way is like from your first class there. It's like, are you going to Harvard? Are you going to Harvard or not? Because everything that you, every B you get means you're not going to Harvard. Every A minus you get means you're not going to Harvard, right. which is so so awful. And even to like, I did like work for four years to try to like go to Harvard or a school like that, which is like, not to like better educate myself, but just so I could like get the sweatshirt and then say, I won, I'm smarter than you all. Like it's so bad. Like right. it's such a bad system to be in. And
1: For the record though, you did get into Harvard. I did. Yes, yes, yes. I, I am better and
2: smarter than everybody. Right. But it took me a long time to unlearn that sort of stuff. But that's kind of just America, right? Just like achieve, 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 or whatever, and uh, or just like pursue things for the sake of the achievement and not for whatever it would be about. You know, there are like people should go to Harvard. (laughs) I'm saying like people, but there are probably people that want to go there and better themselves and educate themselves. I shouldn't have went because I was only going there for the bumper sticker. And
1: (laughs) but I guess even in high school, when you're feeling all the stress and you know, as you're saying, part of it is just working to get into college. I don't know how much beyond that you were thinking, but were you at that point known as like a funny guy?
2: I think, I mean, I I wasn't like a class clown person. Well, maybe I was, I don't know. I I just think of the class clown as like a moron person. (laughs) I mean, like I just think of that someone like, I was probably just like with my friends privately more, but I was, I was also a moron. (laughs) Yeah, no, I, I thought it was funny. I mean, I loved theater. That's what I really loved. That was the thing in in high school that I could feel like was pulling me towards if there was a higher calling and not higher. I mean better. I just mean higher as in for me personally deeper that like the way I was participating in this thing, even though of course I wanted to be really good in the plays and wanted attention.
1: But let's go back to that though, because you, again, we, I don't think we address the fact. So you're, feeling so stressed and, and social anxiety. I don't know if you could pinpoint what was driving that or what does drive that. It was school at that time. It, it wasn't really was. Being it was out, stress.
2: Like, it was yeah. just stress. But it, but it was like, I would do theater, but I also thought, like, of course I'm nervous. Like, I'm about to, like, go on stage in front of 500 people and I'm 16. Like, I don't know who isn't nervous during mm-hmm. that. So And that's how I still sort of see it, is that, like, I don't think it's necessarily antithetical to it. It's mm-hmm. I mean, it definitely makes it difficult, but also, like, i hope it's the very thing that makes me nervous that makes me perceptive Mm -hmm. enough to participate creatively in the way that i do in the thing so it was never i never want to try to let on people that i suffer from severe anxiety disorder i wasn't like crippled by this thing it was just it was something that later crescendoed sort of my early 20s but in high school my performance anxiety quote-unquote my stage fright was very very manageable and wasn't really it was just you know regular old nerves then I was 23 and right, had a panic right. attack on stage. But that was right. my first panic attack of my life right. was at 23. So, and, and for a lot of people, I think for men, it can be late in life. So I.
1: Well, so back then, as you're looking ahead to your future a little bit, even perhaps thinking beyond college, what I understand on the one hand, maybe the idea of comedy in some form was on the radar. But it was mm-hmm. also – it wasn't like that far ahead of being a pastor, right?
2: Oh, uh, well, yeah. Oh, my God, <laughs> being a pastor, yeah. I don't know at that age. I mean – that was when I was very very young. By the time I was 16, I was on the cool like atheist train because I was like I thought I was very cool. What
1: tipped the scale?
2: You just being 15 and right. thinking like you figured the world out or right, something. Right. But no, when I was 7 or 8, I loved church and thought I could have wanted to be a priest and just because they were the only people I saw that were like sitting around thinking all day and talking and I just loved talking about that stuff. Mm-hmm. And it's something that like I probably do in my normal life too much which is just like talking nonsense (laughs) out loud just trying to like think it was the was sort of my first foray into deep thought which a lot is for kids like god and i'm not saying god is exclusively for children at all but like it's kind of in churches the kind of the first time kids are allowed to
1: think very deeply about things Mm -hmm. so what year were you born 1990 1990 so you really did grow up with the era of the computer in the home and the internet and eventually i guess cell phone would cell phones have been a part of your
2: yeah i mean i had like a motorola clunky motorola phone in like seventh grade and like a palm pilot freshman year like so (laughs) but smartphone was junior year or senior year of high school was the first i remember you know the first iphone came out when i was a junior in high school and that's sort of the moment What's when the internet is in your pocket truly the internet in the browser form is in your pocket
1: and how do you think those aspects of things shaped you. Were you somebody who, growing up, was always on your phone or computer? No, I
2: mean that, like I was playing Snake or like texting. You know, like motor. Like the phone I had in middle school was not that much different than anything else. Mm-hmm. And the internet, like I had Instant Message, which which was its own thing. But right. Instant Message was on your computer. It wasn't on your phone. Right. Instant Message, which was, instant messaging, AIM or whatever, was like this little self-contained version of social media. For a couple hours at night where you would, you know, have braver conversations than you would (laughs) in real life. But it was so isolated. It really is like not until the thing I felt in the last four or five years working on my brain and which I think is working on the country's collective brain definitely was not around when I was a kid. Definitely not. I, I really think like the big thing happened insanely when I was like 22 that was, was probably Twitter, 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 Instagram, yeah. t- the Twitterization of all conversation and yeah, thought. Yeah. The central conversation of our culture
1: being Twitter. I love one thing you had said where essentially like the version of your doctor turning out to have been a smoker is going to be, you know, an adult. You shrink, shrink, shrink. shrink, you shrink at yeah. a Twitter
2: account. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It'll be like that. It'll be like, it'll be like right. Yeah, that's what it feels like. My doctor used to smoke. Would we'll right. be the same thing as like my shrink had a, had an Instagram account where they it's like <laughs> but that's the that's the option you're given though. You're given like participate and be miserable right. or don't and don't exist. Right. Like obliterate yourself.
1: Let's zero in on a very specific date, December 21st, 2006. You're 16, a junior in high school, still living at your parents' place and I guess up in your bedroom, what motivated you to record a video called, quote, Uh-oh. my whole family thinks I'm gay, close quote, wow. and upload this to this relatively new thing at the time called YouTube. What brought that about?
2: Well, I had something just so incredibly subtle and creatively airtight that i just had to express (laughs) a piece of media that i knew would age perfectly (laughs) over the coming decades (laughs) but yeah i mean i was 16 i had written a funny little thing i thought was funny and i wanted to show my brother who was at college and there was this new thing called youtube where you could share a video Mm -hmm. there wasn't any like model for virality or whatever at the time
1: what did it take technologically to record and share a video Uh,
2: camcorders on a stack of books that's like what it was. And then like uploading it at 240p. <laughs> it's like the most, it's such bad quality. No mic or any, I mean, just using the external mic of the camcorder that's 15 feet away in my echoey bedroom. Right. And then it was like, I think like a week later it had like 400 views. And then it was like, whoa, that meant like the people in my town had seen it. And then like 3,000 the next week because the next town had seen it. And then it was shared on this site called break.com and it got 250,000 a day. And then it was like what and then it all of a sudden became abstract and then
1: well let's break it down a little more had you done cheeky songs before and i had just... done them
2: backstage at my theater yeah with my theater group i would just play little songs that i had written and i had been i had been learning the piano for a couple of years and i used to do this thing which is so funny it's like so against every rule of how you should post and optimize things on the internet the way i would post my videos I would write like three songs at a time and I'd release three videos all in a day, like of three separate songs <laughs> right, right. and then another batch of three, which is like what I loved about it. It was so pre-algorithm, yeah. so pre-optics. And now like everyone is like, no, no, post it at 9 a.m. Eastern or whatever because <laughs> this is the peak time for this and that. Right. And it was back in the day when we didn't know anything. And, and But it uh,
1: really, for you, it wasn't like, I want a lot of people to see this. It was just a vehicle to get it to your brother? No, no, that's probably disingenuous, like,
2: I, I, of course, wanted people to see it in the back of my mind. and Yeah, I wanted fame like like any American wants mm. fame. Or not any American, but certainly a, a large amount of us. Yeah. You know, I'm part of the generation who, you know, the shift happened. I, I, I sort of made a television show about it where it was like around 2004, there was a switch of the number one answer for what do you want to be when you grow up was famous for kids. It used to be like a doctor.
1: What do you think triggered that? Reality TV? Yeah, probably, yeah. Uh,
2: probably reality TV, which abstracted fame completely, which completely disassociated fame from the service provided that would make someone famous. Now you just are famous for being. So that's very interesting.
1: What makes this so interesting on a subtextual level, I guess, is that we are hearing, I think, very valid, legitimate criticisms of the Internet and fame from somebody who became famous through the Internet. Mm. So let's go back, though, to how close – we came to that not happening because that night your sister, I guess, intervened. You really dug into stuff. I don't remember any of these stories. No, I, I posted the video once and my
2: mother made me take it down. And then I posted it again with some edits, which were correct. She probably saved me like an entire like n- press cycle during all this thing by <laughs> taking my original videos down. Um, yeah, no. Yeah, my mother made me take it down. Actually, she should have. She didn't know what I was doing. I didn't know what I was doing.
1: So as you said, that first YouTube video eventually really blows up thanks to being just picked up by site, this yeah. sitebreak.com. So that's another good lesson for people that you, know, you may not intend it to go everywhere, but it can, things go viral. But that one, 250,000 views in a day, onwards from there, how did that affect your thoughts about YouTube? Were you now, I, I should keep doing this because it's getting a good response? Or what was your feeling at that point?
2: Yeah, I was like,
1: I should write some stuff and keep posting it, I guess, and Your friends and you know, classmates sort of knew you now as this guy or what Yeah, the...
2: kinda, of, but not really. My life didn't really change. That was the sort of immediately true thing that was like oh yeah, these abstractly huge numbers on one hand and my life is the same on the other. Which right. sort of continues to this day of just like the weird abstract way that fame or attention Manifests in some ways and doesn't in others. Right. Looking back, I'm not proud of myself, but like, I didn't lean into it in a way I could have. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? Like, I was, you know, I was a junior. I was offered like a decent, a very decent chunk of money for a junior in high school that had a hundred dollars in the savings account to write like a song for Carl's Jr. Right? And I like didn't do that. And I look back and I go like, yeah, you know, I'm like happy that I had like yeah, a little bit of integrity yeah. back then and know not to do that. But also, I really what i did know which I, the one thing i'm very happy i knew back then which is that like even though i'm getting attention right now i'm like i'm nowhere in my creative journey like i'm just at the beginning of cuz you can see people on youtube where where they get attention for something they made when they're 16 and then now they're 30 and right. they've been they're doing still the, chasing it. they're yeah. doing the thing they were doing at 16 right. and i knew that like i'm getting attention for this but like i really need to grow right. I, I don't really know anything about this yet about writing about Performing about now those them at the very beginning of sort of that journey.
1: Well, let's just so, you know keep it going chronologically. You, you continue to put up other comedic, often musically comedic videos dealing with everything from the KKK to Helen Keller, Jesus and uh, <laughs> and getting a good response. <laughs> but what was the point where it did become professionally viable i mean jesus 2006 bro uh, i disavow i no, disavow I mean, not, no, we're not judging you,
2: i'm just oh oh you yeah. cannot speak for, the, for others for people who judge yeah it's unsurprisingly scott you are not the sole voice Let's of the current believe it or not yeah, right. saying. Uh, so
1: disavow
0: no, i'm like right.
2: justin
1: bieber during
0: his de- deposition Let's
2: i disavow- don't recall I
1: don't recall. That is stipulated. But, but but like, so you you mentioned passing on the Carl's Jr. offer, but there was at some point. Carl's Sr. Carl's Sr. I took with relish. But like you did at some point, you're getting outreach from from the business, right? Yeah. Of comedy and showbiz. Yeah, what Doug was... Edley, who's still my, okay. agent, yeah. who's still How did my that, agent. Where did that come from?
2: From my, like I got an email to my school email account. Like I'm an agent. He was at Gersh at the time. Yeah. And he's like, I represent Joel McHale. I'm like, cool. (laughs) I like love Joel McHale. And he's like, I'm interested in you for, I don't know, it it was more professional than this. The first thing ever was, oh my God, so that's probably 17. He said, come out to LA. Joel's doing a show and I think you should do a spot in his show. I never performed live ever. No, 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 no. I had done one or two performances at the community house at my like you know my for local like, community like a couple dozen people for like a dozen kids yeah yeah so we flew out to LA we stayed at the Hilton Garden or whatever it's it's I don't know what it's <laughs> like and Joel was doing a headlining show at the Melrose Improv and I did a set a 5 7 minute set it's taped it's it's actually taped is it on YouTube mm mm-hmm. mhm and you're
1: 17 and how are the other comedians treating you
2: i just remember incredibly kind i remember like Joel was so so kind and it went okay and then he sent me to open for Joel on the road, but actually I did a taped gig in London as well, oh, which was a my so, fifth
1: time on stage. But like your what set. are your so parents are saying? Like you, so
2: you're still in school. Well, my mother's saying like, hang the towel back up because because the, <laughs> they'll change it over. Like she's staying in the hotel with me. Right. Oh she she God. came out with me and, and, and so, my father. I think. So
1: now though, when you're getting at, it's not even legal age you're being asked to come out and do things professionally for the first time or that was there a conversation like this is crazy is this how you should be spending your time or
2: well yeah i mean they're very supportive like they're very just supportive my 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 brother like and my sister played sports a lot and they would support their sports so this is like my just version of sports i mean mm-hmm. they were also my mother was looking at like hollywood i don't know this seems like like seedy awful mm-hmm. you know i don't know like sketchy place for a child and she was correct. Uh, but but <laughs> so she watched me, you know. Right. They they definitely like were there in the beginning.
1: And you sign with the agent.
2: Yeah, or handshake
1: I've hand yet, I've yet to sign anything really? with Doug, okay. but yeah. But I guess the first but yes, real yes. professional opportunities are that I know there was this deal with Comedy Central, right?
2: Yeah, so man, so I opened for Joel a bunch, like five or six times, which felt like a bunch to me. Mm-hmm. It was crazy, you know, two thousand C theaters or whatever and a gig in Vegas and a gig in Boston. And and
1: you're missing school for this? Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah, it was on the weekends of school, yeah. Wow. I would like I like driving down to Philly with my keyboard to play at this theater, the Keswick Theater. It's a beautiful theater. Making some to. money? Making some money, yeah. Yeah, definitely making some money. And then went to Just for Laughs after I graduated my senior year, July. Man, now it really feels like I'm like this <laughs> oh, it's so funny. Like now recall these stories with so much distance that mm-hmm. I actually can recall them and not, you know, not have anything wrapped up. Right. in them. So graduated high school 2008 in June, went to just for last festival in Montreal in July. So I was 17 and I met Judd there. Doing a show and we got a little script deal going to make something, a a sort of anti-high school musical thing. Mm -hmm. But I did, yeah, I did a Comedy Central Presents, which is a half hour special. Mm -hmm. I remember that was three days before my 18th birthday. That was very exciting. Wow
1: and that led to what was actually a, a deal with them to do several things with them yeah just for, like an album
2: like a four album deal or whatever right. which I, only, I think I've only done still only <laughs> done two of them Jack Vaughn though at Comedy Central Records a great guy He's not there anymore we
1: have um, to say you were the youngest comic ever to have a special on Comedy Central right I would hope so I yeah. mean they, should, <laughs> they
2: shouldn't have given <laughs> it. I mean, geez, they, they shouldn't have given it to me let alone anyone younger than me but I mean this uh, whole thing of, that was literally my like seventh or eighth time on stage that's what's so funny it's so backwards and stupid and silly but like and like i can't if i saw that i'd be so embarrassed but you know i like to think i put in the work and my sort of ten thousand hours just after the fact unfortunately (laughs) i I got the audience first but we can't gloss over the
1: fact that the thing that brought you to people's attention was comedy that you did in a room Mm -hmm. by yourself on camera yeah and that then the thing you ended up doing very soon after (laughs) is a totally different art form of performing live in front of people yeah but there's something similar in terms of like
2: i was not making films and posting them they were uninterrupted one take Mm -hmm. a camera on the thing and then i'd perform the song in three minutes and go over and turn the recorder off so like they, the songs were performances in a way. I'm saying they weren't like, it wasn't cutting to different angles and stuff. So they were very easily translatable to the stage. And what I think is nice, because I didn't cut my teeth in the stand-up club in front of an audience giving me immediate feedback. Because I didn't cut my comedic chops with a constant... I, like, kind of didn't care what people thought a little Mm -hmm. bit. And I kind of had the people that were into my weird little stuff that I don't know if they would have found me in a club. And so so I still, like, when I would go and do my stage shows, I was thinking of them like I was performing them alone in a way. Like, my stage shows theme of them or whatever is being alone, being isolated, having a disconnect from your audience, which I probably first had in the fact that they weren't there I was saying it and I like that about my stand-up that my stand-up isn't just the distance between me and the crowd I think because I love stand-up comedy I love stand-up comedy in comedy clubs I love that type of comedy but it tends to ask for specific things and get a sort of maestro party host type personality not always but there's just like It's not the same as what I felt like I was doing, which was more close to the world of theater, which is sort of writing, creating something in isolation, rehearsing it, making it, and then showing it to a crowd. And then as opposed to stand up, which is like kind of being worked out
1: with a crowd all the time. Right. I guess as your professional opportunities in comedy were just starting while you were still in high school, you were literally simultaneously getting ready for SATs and applying to colleges and we mentioned you got into Harvard, you got into Brown. It sounds like the one that you planned to go to was NYU Tisch. And
2: yeah, I actually signed up to go to that. Yeah.
1: And it was going to be experimental theater. So that
2: itself, like that is so sweet. My parents, like, because (laughs) legitimately it it was like, you know, we're not sitting on a ton of money, my, you know, Mm. but it's like to go to NYU was 40 grand a year to go to Harvard was like four Mm -hmm. because Harvard has such a huge endowment that they don't need to, they, like, don't need tuition or something, right. and basically, like, you submit whatever the thing, and they, like, just – you can just pay kind of what you afford or whatever. Right. And it was, like – it was so much cheaper to go to the school that was –
1: you were that committed to getting into experimental theater that the <laughs> dream of Harvard was now secondary well, to doing my parents theater. to be, like – Right. And I tell my mom, like, you should have told me, like <laughs> – <like>, but, <laughs> but she they
2: just trusted me and, like, knew I was passionate about it, which is so sweet and so, so
1: kind. So you graduated from high school. You said 2008. 2009 was the first stand-up special that you had on TV with the Comedy Central one. Words, words, words. 2000. we very
2: deep. We're glossing over some stuff. You want to? Go, oh, the, we, you yeah. want to go over my virginity? We're really going step by well, step. Well, t- to this.
1: answer your uh, your first video's question. Well, that's way way, way were... later. Virginity's way. Yeah, that's but that's after that's between Sundance and South <laughs> by. <laughs> so 2009 was the first one 2013 was the second one on youtube called what and then 2016 was the third one make happy on netflix
2: what right? was on youtube and netflix which is very cool like I, I went to netflix and i was like they're like we'll give you this much money if you make your special here or whatever and i said what if i it on youtube as well for free can i do that and they said like we'll give you half <laughs> and I was like, and it was cool. Like, covered the expenses of the special. So Why it was, was like, it
1: important to you to put it on YouTube? I thought it was like some
2: cool statement I was making, and then no one noticed it. Like, everyone <laughs> thinks that it, like, and it has like my posted video right. of the show is like ten million views or whatever. Right. But people just think it's like a pirated version of the thing, right. like the actual statement I was making, which is like I'm gonna post a special for free right, for on free. YouTube, and I even didn't put any ads in the video, which again no one noticed. Right. It was the lesson I learned that like so it wasn't like let's give
1: back to YouTube that I yeah, came, well, which I came from. Yeah, well it was. It
2: was, it was like yep. I want to, like put my whole special on there for free as the statement, but I'm saying it wasn't even seen as that because right. people don't even like notice what the username <laughs> was or that stuff. <laughs> Whatever. I mean it doesn't matter. I just I also with that special in particular. I just felt like I want this to be seen,
1: yeah, it's smart because you knew that it does work that way with YouTube. You can go go very far and wide quickly, but so those three stand up specials on t v plus you're still touring and doing live stuff like Edinburgh Comedy Festival, yeah, yeah, yeah. 2010 and 2013. But so 2010 was the first time you go there. I think mm-hmm. you won two awards. One of them, quote, act most likely to make a million quid, close quote. So there's it's obviously it was going well. But the second one in 2013, having already done at least one, maybe even the second of these filmed specials, you go back and I would think you would have had more confidence and, and self-assurance and whatever. And yet- it sounds like that's where the onstage panic attack started.
2: Yeah, well, The Fringe is a pretty isolated, specific experience that's pretty stressful. It's actually the only thing that's comparable to the thing I've been going through right now with the sort of award circuit thing, yeah. which is like The Fringe Festival. It's, it's, you know, 300 shows all battling for audiences. The first year I was in this place called The Pleasance in a venue called the Queen Dome, which is a little 175-seat converted room that's converted to this little round theater. The way it works is you do your show, you get reviews, and there's a huge, huge mechanism for reviewing comedy in Europe, which there isn't over here, and it's why I connected to so much comedy over there, and I think the, the actual system of review of comedy, which is very intimidating, obviously, also like... a Dignifies comedy as an art form over there, where it really doesn't over here. Anyway, you know, you get re- these reviews. Then what you do is you cut out your reviews, cut out your stars, and you put them you put them on all your posters around the thing. And the good review shows get seen. Mm-hmm. The bad review shows don't. I had a really good run in 2010, which was nice. And then 2013, I got put into the 900 or 800 seat theater, the Pleasance Grand, the big place, and did a 10, 10 run show there. So, you know, that's 8,000 tickets to sell in Scotland. Uh, You know, I go in there. I've only sold the first show. I've sold the first show out with everyone who's ever heard of me in Scotland. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, I have nine shows the rest of the time that – are either going to be full or empty based on the reviews that happened that right, first right, night, right. which I'm just sitting there and it's like, yeah, there's the reviewer for, you know, The Times and The Guardian and The Scotsman. And my show was at 11.30 at night. And the way the schedule of these things happen is the the turnover for the shows are four to four to seven minutes long. One show ends in four to seven minutes oh, okay. next, the next show starts. And the show before me was a guy called The Boy With Tape On His Face, who's an incredible, I think he's New Zealand, mime clown act who has a piece of black tape over his mouth and does an entire silent comedy routine it's amazing and the end of his show was 99 red balloons 99 balloons played and 99 red balloons dropped on the stage and Mm. he did this whole thing and it was a big so i'm freaking out you know in this tiny dark in this dark 800 seat smoky room as i'm waiting in the four to seven minutes between changing over the crowd to get my crowd in 11 30 at night To be reviewed to determine the next week of my life. All I'm hearing is my pre show routine was the sound of balloons being violently popped to turn over for my show so it was like some crazy sort of like knob experience right i mean i can also look back and go i should have been like you know i could go bomb in edinburgh and come back here and no one would really notice you know (laughs) but it's very stressful and and that first night i had my first panic attack on stage because it's just intense it's also just too much Like, like
1: take us in your head or your body or whatever what does a panic attack on stage
2: feel like tunnel vision zoom just short of breath it feels like uh, you're just constantly trying to catch your breath and you can't so like everything just like your words are like like you're just fighting to catch the breath to say your words all the time right everything becomes incredibly abstract you feel like you're sort of disassociating from yourself you're like out of body and it's just weird and then like the thing you want to do in a panic attack is go like oh okay i'm having but instead you have to in a show you have to I'm within a play Mm -hmm. that I've created that every beat and word and gesture is written and planned. So I have to, like, continue through my own, this, like, virtual reality thing that I've made for myself.
1: It's weird. And I didn't know what it
2: was until months later. And
1: And it continued through other live performances.
2: Yeah, I probably had ten in my life, ten panic attacks, nine of which were on stage. And one of which was on a train from New York to D.C., between shows, triggered by anything or just between shows, I was four. Uh, I was four shows into a fifty-show tour, uh, and I had had two panic attacks on stage already. And I'm like, I'm just like in for hell. I'm like, oh right. my god, I have forty-five shows in the next forty-eight days, right. and I've already freaked out twice. And I just seen the Martian. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, so all of this, I guess, is what sort of leads up to you know. Three years later the next special comes out, Make Happy, which obviously was recorded maybe even two years later, let's say, or mm. whatever. And the Well la- I said I'd
2: quit. I said I was gonna quit after what? And I wrote Well, but let's grade. let's
1: set it up a little more though, because know. the last few minutes of that hour are there's an eight minute auto-tune Kanye style thing called Can't Handle This, which ends with you saying to the audience, quote I can pretend my biggest problems are Pringle cans and burritos. The truth is my biggest problem's you. I want to please you, but I want to stay true to myself. I want to say what I think and not care what you think about it. Part of me loves you. Part of me hates you. Part of me needs you. Part of me fears you. And I don't think I can handle this right now. Close quote. You bow. You say thank you. You drop the mic. You leave the stage. And then you did not do stand-up again for how long? Two years probably. And that was tied to not wanting to subject yourself to the panic attacks, right? Yeah, I mean, I just didn't have fun. I just didn't have fun. It wasn't fun anymore. But I guess even well before that, 2014, you were already at that point starting yeah. to write what yeah. became 8th grade. So were you looking for a way out of stand-up?
2: Yeah, I mean, yes. I, I wrote 8th grade sort of the month after what premiered. Mm-hmm. And I was like, I don't want to do stand-up anymore. Mm-hmm. So I wrote eighth grade and -hmm. i tried to sell it wasn't happening and then the special did really well and it was like shoot i find i kind of finally got the ticket sales that i always hoped i would get to play the venues i always wanted to which was theaters legitimate theaters like when i was doing my what tour i I, couldn't sell theaters i could sell small theaters 800 seaters and stuff but i couldn't do the real theaters that i wanted to do and not that i wanted to do i mean i was terrified but like the scale of the show yeah. I wanted to build was a show that was built for a 1,500 to 2,000-seat theater. Mm-hmm. And the special worked, and I could finally sell 2,000 tickets in basically every market. Mm-hmm. So I was like, all right, I'll do one more. Like, I'll do one more show, and I'll build this show, make the show I've always wanted to make, which is a comedy show that does not work in a comedy club, that does not make sense in any place smaller than a 1,000 seats. Mm-hmm. So... I did that last push and and I'm very happy with that special, like that special, there are parts I'm not too happy with, but I'm glad I did that. And I also was like, I'm going to finally talk about it. I'm going to make a show about my anxiety, about my struggle with doing this as if that's going to fix it. Of course it doesn't fix it. But yeah, so I'm glad that happened. Mm -hmm. But but yeah, the the eighth grade was written before that was written.
1: And that's another way to work through or at least grapple with anxiety,
2: right? Yeah, they're like they're very similar. My last special eight created are similar. Yeah. I think they're 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 sort of, they were sort of written in the same time actually.
1: Well, so the question that obviously you've probably gotten more than maybe more than any other is why yeah, did you decide to center your film on a thirteen year old girl as opposed to say a twenty something guy like yourself who's going through his own version of the same thing?
2: <laughs> the truth of like. I was so bored with myself, and like another thing about a comedian being sad. Like I'm so bored of that. I I, like it's (laughs) for me, just for me personally. It's like the most boring subject in the world. And I tried writing something about like a 25 year old guy living at home with his parents. And it was just like, man, it became like just dark and like unlikable and boring, kind of. And like there were a
1: bunch of characters, right?
2: Well, well, that's another thing. But I mean, I, I tried to do the. I wrote like a pilot of me kind of but not me but like I tried to write just like a thing about a angry young man or whatever mm-hmm. or whatever it was. Yeah, and then I tried to write a bunch of other stuff and then it was like I wrote her and then stumbled on her and it was like, oh, this is this is everything. This is probably everything I'd want to say, but it was never like I should write a girl or I was writing a boy. I was like, let me make it a girl. It was mm-hmm. like it was she just kind of appeared fully formed, not fully formed, but as fully formed as something can be in the script process before it's embodied by an actor. Um, you said
1: again you were born nineteen ninety, yeah. so you're twenty four when you start writing this. Twenty three, so you're even in the ten years since you had been thirteen. The experience of a thirteen year old, much less, or you know, not to, to say nothing of a thirteen year old girl, had changed immensely. So how do you go about knowing and then and kind of capturing what a thirteen year old girl sounds like years after you're even in that demo?
2: Yeah, I mean, I had no interest in retracing my own steps, so I never consulted my past experience or memory for this. Really, I mean, of course, I did at some level when we're like, you know, on the day and there's like sniffable markers and stuff. I'm definitely like memories are coming back, but like, I didn't care about my eighth grade experience. I did not care about for me 2003 when I was in eighth grade and all that stuff like that with no interest. So I consulted the real kids talking online. I mean, I saw videos of 13-year-old kids, a lot of them girls, expressing themselves in sort of 10-minute uninterrupted soliloquies online with subject lines like, you know, how to be yourself or how to live life. And I saw them performing themselves in public in a captured medium, and I thought, this is, this is it. This is what it means to be alive. This is, this is the modern struggle. This is the central character of the current moment for me is a 13-year-old girl presenting her soul in a weird performative way online and then trying to square that with her lived experience, which is probably, you know, for this particular girl who is, you know, middle class, white, her experience is pretty banal. And that's sort of what she's having to square. But that felt like. I don't know, it it was just in and of itself compelling to me. I didn't really have to, in any way, you know what I mean? I didn't have to go like, it was like I was writing about an astronaut or something. Where it was like, that's how I viewed it. Where I was just like, this is just incredibly fascinating. I just want to be true to this experience. I feel like I understand her on a deep level. But it was current and real. I related to her currently.
1: But even, you know, right down to the fact that here's somebody who is turning to YouTube for in some ways, attention, right?
2: Yeah, I know. I, and that's probably made its way into there somewhere, but I never thought of myself at 16. To, I think the way she is online is so different than the way I was online at 16. And I think what online it was in 2006 right. is so different than what it was now. For me, the way she is online is so much more similar to the way I am right now in this interview than the way I was in 2006. The way I relate to her is so much more my current need to present myself to the world in a certain way than my 16-year-old's presentation of some funny skit he was doing to be famous. I don't know that she wants to be famous. like She wants to just be like recognized, and she just wants to exist. She just wants to exist, and she's told that that's how she exists. I had much more of like a, I don't know, I was doing something much more quote unquote artistic and I don't mean that in a better way. Like I was playing a game trying to get something. She's like being. There's a way kids are, are online now, which is similar to us where it's like there is no end game. It is just like be yeah. just like to be or not to be. It like really is. I mean <laughs> yeah. I do think that like
1: yeah. Well the way you've talked about it and another thing I, I saw I thought was pretty great, you said, quote, the problem is we are hyper connected and we're lonely. We're overstimulated and we're numb. We're expressing ourselves and we're objecting ourselves, close quote. Just basically that this idea that what we think we need to do and what almost everyone does do is actually very detrimental to all of us, right? I mean, it's not a healthy, probably situation for any of us. Why it's too soon to know the long-term implications. Yeah, well,
2: yeah. I mean, it's yeah. We can take inventory of the short term and realize that I don't think any of us are happy. And the problem is, yeah, it's really tough right now. I, I don't know what's happening, and it's like. I think the problem might be the mediums or, well, the problem is obviously certainly deeper than the mediums. But, but the fact that we're trying to solve the problem through these mediums is really difficult. That's what that's what makes it crazy. You know what I mean? It's like, it's like you got Trump tweeting and then people trying to tweet Trump out of office. And it's like, wow, I wonder where that's going to lead, you know? I mean, like these systems are designed only for engagement. That's all they want. They don't want conversation to get healthier they don't want things to get better they want don't want us to get along they want us to engage just engage 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 they just want your time your attention and your focus that's all that these things are trying to get from you and it's not because it's evil people twiddling their mustaches and that's what we're asking for we, we've made a world that's tweetable you know that's of course there's a lot of things that led to trump and all that stuff mm-hmm. but part of it feels like we just like the system called for someone that would make us tweet all day about him. It's sort of the backwards thing it was sort of like the late night sort of comedy, like satirical news. I felt like there was so much satirical news that at some point, that the satirical news was such a heavy burden on the culture that it was actually like begging for the most satirizable news. So it got it. Like, congrats. Here we congrats, are. Yeah. Congrats, news satire. Right. You got you got your softball right down the middle. And like, jeez, it's like. Right. I don't know what that's actually concretized in our culture is actually asking for solution. I don't know what's calling for it other than the people, other than every actual person, you know, in private conversation or together. It's just like it's so – it's really hard. It's tough, let alone to be like a child just trying to navigate your own inner experience, you know, and that's – that was the way to – I thought that I was going to have to go after all these questions in those big ways. And the more I sort of engage with the questions on these big ways, I can do it here all day, you know, in a fun way, just sort of BSing about it. But I realized that the better way to go after it was just subjectively and to talk about a small subjective experience of all of this of this yeah. nightmare oh. of of this chaos, rather than.
1: But is she emblematic of like our millennials? She's Gen Z. I'm a millennial. Okay. So she—that that is a common misconception. Yeah, what's, where's the line? Yeah, so
2: millennials are basically 19, born 1980 to 1995 is the general idea. She's born in 2000. Three, four, like she is so definitely post millennial. They they call them post millennials, Gen Z, or I Gen, which I hate. I right. Gen so corny, but that's the <laughs> irony of all this stuff is that the generational names are always named by the previous right, generation. Yeah. You know, <laughs> um, so they're always like out of you know out the of touch.
1: choice to say in the matter. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But okay, so let's just say though, from millennials, which I, I guess is that it, based on your timeline, encompasses me and you. Yeah, and onwards. So including her, are we a different? breed than the people before us? Because I mean, just for instance, this week, to give the example that everybody's talking about this week, we've had two documentaries come out. I don't know if you've seen yeah, either the Fire yet. About Fire the first. I'm
2: excited for the Netflix. Yeah, film.
1: me too. I'm and,
2: definitely watching both. Yeah. But
1: I'll tell you what, it doesn't reflect very well on us. But would that have happened? Had any? Is it just it's specific to the, the times in which we came? out I mean, basically, we are depicted as narcissistic, materialistic and clueless about the world. It's hard to know, does that truly define a majority of people of of this era? Yeah, well, I mean, I also think that's fire festivals
2: attracting I mean, it's a, it's like a dog Certain whistle for the worst person. type of right. person ever, <laughs> which I would say the worst type of person is the person going to Firefest Fest, ironically. Right. I would actually say that's the worst type of person in our culture <laughs> is the person that's going to roll their eyes right. and also participate in the thing, which right. is so widespread right. now I can't even –
1: Well, that was the influencers were doing that, right? But Iron,
2: no, no, but it's even worse than it's it's like the cool people that think they're above everything and also participating in it, which is like actually like the only path towards being cool for like my generation and the generation below me is to like ironically shit on bad things. It's such a, it's so, I don't know, it's, it's, it it really, really depresses me. But no, I don't know. I mean, there's, yeah, I think we're probably all those things. I think we're probably, you know, at least in part, proliferation of means means that a lot of our generation more than others are sort of probably clueless privileged Mm -hmm. idiots i also think a real problem of the moment is visibility i mean it's also the great thing about the moment but sometimes we damn the current moment based on what's visible right and if we had had visibility to previous moments in the culture we would have realized how absolutely awful those things are and everyone's like you know it's like, oh, man, racial tension is the worst it's ever been, which is like, of course, there has been some severe step backwards in the right. last few years. But it's also like we are just getting, I think, white people are just finally, <laughs> in certain ways, aware of things they had never right. been aware of. And right. They're finally actually getting, you know, it's like everything was just fine well, 20 well, yeah, years ago. Where it's like, was think, police no, brutality? Oh, yeah, yeah exactly, now we have cameras. Exactly, are, yeah. exactly. So so I think part of it is visibility and just – and that it's a lot to process. We're finally like – It's so strange, and it's again why it's like my stupid little thing about hyperconnected and lonely. It's like we are as visible as we ever have been, and we are as distorted at the same time. Like we are seeing more than we've ever seen, and we're also completely warped. and It's wild. It's so far beyond anything. Like when I go back and read, like you know, interesting cultural critics or people that were like wrestling with television and Mm -hmm. these new mediums, like. So many changes happen so quickly. We haven't processed any of them. Right. It's so complicated. And the way it like interfaces with our culture and our conversation, the way we see ourselves, it's so complicated. And when I really try to think about it, I'm like on the floor, right?
1: confused. Well, no, the film helps to kind of make you think about it. But I guess I want to just ask a few logistical things before we go. So in terms of the writing of this, there are elements here that, you know, we're sounds like somewhat drawn from your experience, like maybe the time capsule or things like yes. that, right? <laughs> <It> were <was> so
2: <laughs> funny. I was like, I made this show for MTV and it was called Zack Stone's going to be famous. It's like yeah. this little like mockumentary thing. And I, I was really, really proud of it. And I had watched it a long, long time. Me and my girlfriend, she's been with me since I made that show. Yeah, Like six months ago, we're like, we should throw it on. Like we should just, we haven't seen it in so, so long. So I throw in an episode, and Zack takes out a time capsule, like a shoebox on the 11th episode. I'm like, why is this stuff still appearing? Recurring. He takes out a shoebox. Yeah. opens no, a shoebox. And in that same episode, there's this skit where he goes, like, where he's they're eating dinner, and it's like this fake scene of eating dinner, and the fake lines are like... Um, your eggs are getting cold. I like them that way. And in the movie, right. she says, he says, your dinner's getting right, cold. Getting... She says, I like it that way. Wow. And I'm going like, oh my God, like what the hell? <laughs> like I'm obsessed with time capsules and like intentional cold, cold food. food. <laughs> it's like so funny.
1: So when you when you sat down to write this, did you know exactly where it was going when you started? Had you outlined, or was it sort of like, let's see where this leads me? Definitely not. Yeah.
2: I only I only sat down to write to enjoy writing. I was at the sort of that dark place we were talking about. In my life. And I wanted to enjoy writing. So mm-hmm. I didn't even sit down thinking like, I'm going to make a movie. I'm going to direct a movie. I was like, I'm going to go to this coffee shop for two hours. I'm going to enjoy doing what I'm doing. I'm going to just enjoy this. So I would sit down and write just what what would be fun to write, to write, right. not to make, just just to enjoy writing. And I started writing this. And I really enjoyed it. Mm-hmm. And then I was like, I'm, just gonna, I'm not going to worry about connecting this stuff or stressing myself out with structure or any of that. I'm just going to write something that would excite me man if she went to a pool party boom and it just was exciting okay she's in a drill and she has to talk to this kid and then you know i got probably 60 pages into it and we're like okay this is like something, something. Yeah. and there's a direction here and there's clearly like this there's definitely an order that these scenes should probably be in and now now what is the structure and i had these videos as well and when i found the time capsule it was like okay that's the movie like yeah. th- that was weirdly the thing that made it that actually gave the movie
1: structure. Oh, that's great. And then I guess the other kind of obvious question is you had done some directing before in the sense that you'd done Gerard Carmichael's special, which led to the Chris Rock special that you directed. But that's very different than directing a feature narrative Mm -hmm. film, even if it's, I think, $2 million budget. It's not Mm -hmm. going to drive somebody out of business here if it didn't work. But like that, Who had to buy into you as a director for that to happen?
2: I know. Well, it was A24 and Scott Rudin who kind of came on at the same point. I had talked to A24 early when they were just a distributor, which, of course, like your new moment was like my dream company for this film. And they were like, we'll distribute it if you get money. And then I didn't get money for so long. They actually became a financier in the meantime. (laughs) And it was funny because Scott Rudin says like this was so not part of the argument or like so not part of why they came on board. But I had tried to get a little make-happy, that previous special had just come out, and I had sold, you know, however, 100,000 tickets or whatever on the mm-hmm. road that previous year. And I was able to go, like, okay, if just these people right. buy the tickets to the movie, you'll get a little bit of your money back. Mm-hmm. So, like, I can already prove to you that right. at least some of this is recoupable. But Scott says, like, no, he just read the script and was like, this <laughs> this is
1: this, this seems good and but still <laughs> believing in you as a director is a different thing than loving the script yeah yeah
2: the truth is it, it, it was a risk and i'm incredibly grateful but for them so for take the risk because a lot of people did not want to take that risk
1: right but then you get there and obviously prove that you were able to do it and i think something like the pool scene where you have everything from the music thumping when she sees the cuter kid to the tracking shots all it's very cinematically skilled for somebody who you didn't go to film school you didn't make other short films as far as I know before so like just literally how did you know what to do when you had to direct well I mean relying on my collaborators for sure Andrew Wade my DP and my
2: producer Chris Storer and a lot of people but um part of it was just like maybe just believing that I could do it was you know part of it not being too intimidated I did get the green light like eight months before we shot because we had to shoot in the yeah. summer because it was a kid's movie yeah. and it was going to like double the budget to shoot right. during the school year. So I had eight months to read, you know, a book a week and three – watch three movies a day. So th- there was some stuff I needed to I, – I, there's a lot of stuff I still need to learn technically. I'm very behind technically. But I had confidence in my – at least my ability to work with actors. I felt like – you know, I and coming from the world of theater and – and making the specials, like, I tried to make my specials like films, and I tried to introduce some film grammar into my into my specials. And I, I do believe that, like, making stuff prepares you to make stuff. And I had made stuff before. I had had visions, at least, of what a thing would feel like, and that I had made something, and I had realized, okay, that's how you can make it appear like this. That's how you can't, and... I definitely have a ton to learn about filmmaking. Like I have
1: a lifetime, hopefully, left to learn about filmmaking. Last uh, couple minutes here. I just want to power through, if we can, just a few other things that I'm sure people are wondering if if they're listening and specifically Elsie Fisher, who plays Kayla. Where'd you find her just having just finished eighth grade herself? I mean, she's excellent in it to the point where I think it actually made me feel anxious watching it that she's... Living these moments that obviously are you've, you've so empathized for her.
2: I found her online. I saw a video of her being interviewed for something. I don't know what it was. And I just kind of was like, this is exactly what I think. It wasn't like what I pictured. I, like, weirdly, so arbitrarily, like, I thought she had brown hair. You know mm-hmm. I mean, it's like all this stupid mm-hmm. stuff. But it was immediately, like, this is what it sounds like to me. Mm-hmm. I didn't know if she could act. Mm-hmm. She came in. She was the second person in the room, and she really could act. Mm. And it was never anybody else. I mean, I saw 100 kids after but it was always, always her. Never a second choice. Never. And
1: was it with her, you know, let's take, for instance, her her vlogs. It feels so real and natural. Is that... Totally scripted, or do you give her permission to improvise a little bit, or how does that work? It's
2: pretty much scripted. I mean, we give her permission to stumble if she needs to, or not to be right. exactly word perfect. Right. But the script is written. Yeah. Um. So the thing about being yourself is, uh, like, wait, ugh, I'm reading this right. off a piece of paper. Sorry. Oh, okay. Huh. All right. So yeah, it's much more scripted than it appears. It definitely isn't improvised.
1: What is Gucci, man?
2: That's Elsie's little thing. Elsie yeah. did that on set all the time. Would say that after she. She'd be like, I'd be like, how are you doing today? I'll say she'd be like Gucci and put her little <laughs> hand up. And then we filmed the videos last. So I I was like, oh, it should be her sign off. Yeah. So it's hers. Yeah.
1: So this movie gets done, gets into Sundance. I guess you were tinkering with it till right before. Yeah, we were coloring it. We finished coloring it the Tuesday and then we premiered on a Friday. On a Friday. So it gets seen, goes over so, so well. I think it's still maybe the most or, or the second most well-reviewed movie of the year according to Rotten Tomatoes or whatever. all this stuff all the recognition that's come does any of that cure the anxiety of course all of it does I'm <laughs> better now
2: no I mean truly like talking about it certainly does you know like <laughs> you know like certainly does no yeah I mean it feels great I mean it definitely doesn't doesn't help the anxiety of making another film <laughs> you know what I mean like it's like I wish it could have we could have hit a middle mark where I could have Yes, gotten a good enough response to justify making another film, but also not for it to <laughs> be an inevitable comparative failure. Right. But, no, it's uh, no, it's great. I mean, it's wild. You know, it's like – I mean, I had a 10-year at least run where I really – I, like, feel like I finally got invited to the party, and it's very strange because I, like, never was. I was always just on the outsides doing my own weird little thing right. and sort of was never – Embraced
1: by the establishment. Yeah, right? never.
2: I was just never written. You know what I mean? Like all these. Right. You know, like these sites or these. You know, right. everyone. You guys, like, I was never really on that radar ever. You know. Right. So that's strange. But you know, I found I found the people to be just as weird and sad as I am. Well, <laughs> you, know, you know what I'm saying? It's like I, I went this like, oh my god, like the terrifying world of film. And I mean, I'm like, oh, like just these another. are these are my people.
1: Right. I mean, much more than I thought they'd be. I thought they were gonna be. Highfalutin. Does this mean that film is exclusively the future, or will there be more stand-up? I think I might do some
2: stand-up. I, I want to. It's pretty enticing right now just because it like seems so hard to do stand-up right now that it, it seems exciting to do again. But
1: Final man. question. Yeah. You are obviously so good at identifying and then talking about the oddities and eccentricities of a situation, right? So we're seeing that with 8th grade and what, what it's like to be a kid and all of that. Can you do the same right now about what it's like to be in the – what award season is like?
2: Well, yeah. I mean it's interesting. I mean the central probably irony of the entire thing just in the politicized moment Mm -hmm. is probably people in golden rooms criticizing our president for – being in a golden room i mean like that's like the thing that makes me a little crazy i'm like all right we're gonna like go after trump when it looks like trump was like the interior decorator of all these like (laughs) award shows that we're at like that 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 to me is always a little wacky i just don't know how many there were it's like wild how many there are so that's pretty crazy but it's you know it's nice. I mean, it's nice. I'm, like, f- friends with Paul Schrader. Like, that's very funny. <laughs> like, it's, like, very funny how many times I've, like, seen Paul Schrader. I'm like, Paul! <laughs> like, like, Paul and I have been at, like, so many luncheons together, which is, like, not at all how I thought my life would turn out. But it's good. You know, I mean, like, the real thing you do is, like, I would have thought by this point, point it's probably very convenient for me to say this now that I'm here, you know, that I'd be, like, rolling my eyes going, like, man, awards words are bullshit. You know what I mean? But it's, like, Truly, when you actually make an independent film and you see the state of the world and people's attention, you realize like this is, this is the only thing we have to get these films seen by people. And I just have, I have seen people reach out to me. I've seen people online that that have seen the movie because of the awards attention it gets. And like people don't realize it's like yeah, well, is this Hollywood patting itself on its back? Sure, but it's like it's also like the only thing that is promoting eccentric strange things to be seen by who who would have like people are going to see, see like burning mm-hmm. and cold war and like all these movies that they like would not have seen had it not been recognized by you know the saint louis chronicles <laughs> golden goose awards or whatever they're or called. the
1: barack obama top 15
2: list <laughs> yeah that's very well, that good a good one for you guys but so like that is that is legitimate. And right. I also realized that, like, going into, like, the person that's – no one is taking the awards more seriously than the person in the back going, these are bullshit. <laughs> like, that – like, you are taking it way too seriously then, like – and that's right. Just to go and, like, have a sense of humor, right. you know. I, I, Of course I care. Of course I'd want to get nominated for an Oscar. Who the right. heck wouldn't want – I right. mean, like, i am I like kidding myself and saying I wouldn't want to? So it's like have a little fun. Right care because it's fun to care it's like fantasy sports i mean who doesn't want to get you know i mean who doesn't want to like And it's also like fun for my parents and stuff to i mean they can text me a little less about it my father can probably turn off the google alerts at this point but yeah i mean that's the thing it's like it's very easy to be cynical about it because it's so obviously right (laughs) cynical but you know at the end of the day like it's it really is about the work it is about the and like whatever Whatever I can do to get this movie seen, I want it to be seen. Whatever that means. So I really, really appreciate it. Because this movie would have died. and Not died, but like, people are still talking about this movie and seeing it in in January. And that's because of this circuit. So I'll go around and do whatever. And (laughs) people are people, too. You know, if it's at a PGA screening, it's still just people coming up and shaking your hand and saying they like the movie or they're engaging in this part. You know, so like... They're all just excuses to talk to people about the film and the work and, and, and that's all then. So it's it's great. Well thank you for doing that. Was that said. was that a good That was great. I, the I, deep, is, that deep, is that a fair <laughs> political I think so does, does it show that Oscar the I'm ready for Oscar season? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right. It's already over here.
1: Exactly. <laughs> Thanks a lot. Yeah, appreciate it. Peace.